You're listening to the One of Us .net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. is back. We've got a ton of titles to talk about this week. Joining me is my friend and co-host, John Golson. Hi, I'm John Golson. Is that going to be your voice for the show today? It's my <laughs> voice all the time. It never I'm, hurts to help. I'm happy and positive. <laughs> You're like the eek the cat of digital noise. Yes. <laughs> like three people can recognize that reference. I never watched eek. I watched Terrible Thunder Lizards. I don't even know about that. Is that the same guy? That was the Savage Steve Holland, the, his other cartoon, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the only reason I even watched Eek the Cat was because I was like, what? This is the guy from Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer. And Terrible Thunder Lizards, one of the characters was supposed to sound like Bill Paxton from Aliens. So it was like these three dinosaurs and one of them talked like, <laughs> like uh, what's his name? Not Hicks. What's his name? Hudson. Hudson, yeah. From yeah. Aliens, yeah. <laughs> it would have been better for his best guess. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to go right into it and start with Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, now out on 4K, Blu-ray, and digital. Of course, we reviewed this in the theater for uh, highly suspect reviews. You can kind of see my take on this, at least on the movie itself there. But I'll say, upon rewatching it, you know, I mean, I, I think like like with a lot of Marvel films, you kind of you end up sort of toning down the stuff that mildly annoyed you the first time you saw it and kind of like it a little bit more. I still mm. think this is the middle of the, 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 you know, middle of the Marvel uh, as far as movies go. But God, you and I are so similar and it's always so unexpected. <laughs> uh, I was a little worried about this one. I was sweating it a little because oh, that I, I like- don't have the, I don't have the consensus opinion on this. Um, I thought it was kind of generic and middle of the road to be okay. completely honest okay. with you. There's a lot uh, of stuff I think is really good. It just, I, I mean, Overall, I was kind of hoping for a little bit more, especially with the third act, which I thought has suffers from very typical Marvel third act problems. There was nothing in it that I found particularly surprising. I'm not sure that I think Simu Liu can carry uh, a movie, but who am I to judge that? Marvel thought he could and audiences think he can. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I was surprised at how much this left me cold. Hmm. Uh, it was not a Shang-Chi guy <laughs> i wasn't for the comics i loved the comic books all, I, see, all I never read the comics all, all the martial arts comics growing up those were my favorites oh really those. yeah i loved them iron fist all that shit yeah, yeah no i never read i never read uh shang chi comics i didn't really i don't i may have never read a story that he was in to be completely honest with you until they had him train spider-man how to fight which was about 10 years ago 12 years ago right right um 
but other than that, like, and I and I like him fine as a comic character. Uh, yeah, the movie just left me cold. It Obviously, just... there's a really different take on the character from the comics because you kind of have to. I mean, not the least of which the dad, which is a really racist stereotype in the yeah. comics, Fu Manchu, which Marvel doesn't own the rights to anyway. Apparently, so it was like, no, nah, we're just gonna do the Mandarin, but the Mandarin is also kind of a racist stereotype. So they're like, what if we uh kind of make it where yeah, the Ten Rings is a thing. But the Mandarin is kind of like, you know, if you've seen Iron Man 3, you're like, yeah, some white guy was like, I'll call myself a Mandarin. It's like, what, you're naming yourself after an orange? I'm like, or a dialect. I don't know. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree with you somewhat about Simu Liu. Even on Kim's Convenience, the show he kind of came from, I thought he was the weakest link on that show. I was like, he's fine, but he's not all that interesting. And I think he's really good with the physical stuff here, but... I don't know. I mean, he's even when it's just him and Aquafina, they play off each other pretty well, I think. But when he's trying to do drama, I didn't really completely buy it. Um, I think Aquafina is really funny here. I think she's all right. I think they, I think they gave her like Kat Dennings, Darcy lines. Mm-hmm. They basically just transplanted that character onto Aquafina. They gave her a little bit more to do though, in terms of like she's more relevant to the plot, even if it's sort of like she's a little crowbarred into it. You're like, well, this probably would have been fine without her. I mean, even when you watch on the disc, the deleted scenes, it's clear how hard they were trying to find ways to make her more relevant. Like they experimented with like a discussion of her having a romantic connection with, with Sean. And they experimented with the, the big arrow scene where she's the one who shoots the, the big arrow yeah. towards the end. That was much more extended at one point, gave it more weight, but you can see why they were kind of like, okay, we don't need all that actually. Um, I think the action was oversold by others towards me as well, because most of the bus stuff was in the trailer, and then you have the scaffolding fight, and then there's the big ending, and the big mm-hmm. ending is all CG, yeah, mainly all CG. CG armies and dragons and stuff, and it's like the uh, I I just felt like you know people really emphasize like oh finally a Marvel movie that has fantastic action sequences, and it was like <laughs> you're like what Marvel like, movies are you watching? Like without- two of them in this and. <laughs> They're fine. Like I'm just like, wait, what do you mean? Finally, a Marvel film with <laughs> fantastic action sequences. There's a lot. We're in deep into the middle of the. It's cool to hate on Marvel. Period of hipsterdom. Like all the twenty somethings and early thirty somethings are all like, man, Marvel's the worst. You're like, dude, just shut up. You like, it's fine. You don't enjoy Marvel films. That's your right. But stop talking like you know what you're talking about because you don't. Yeah, <laughs> and that, and but I do. I sound like that right now. No, no, my vibe. I mean, I've seen all the Marvel films, and even the weakest of them, I'll probably rewatch again. Which would be Iron Man two, in my opinion, is the by far the weakest one. But I mean, this is fine. It's it's got some parts I really like. It's just there's so many Marvel films that are so much better than this one. And you know, yes, full applause, full Asian cast did that thing. You know, good for you. Let's see more Asian actors and people of color uh, in Marvel films. It seems like that's the path we're going on, and I'm all about it. But, but I think when you bring that up, it's a thing of like and, – and, you know, Walter Chaw of Film Freak Central has touched on this as well, which is this idea of like if you're presenting Black Panther, you're presenting a vision of Afrofuturism that's never been present on screen before, mm-hmm. ever before. Mm-hmm. And Shang-Chi is the opposite. It leans on a bunch of like Hong Kong fantasy and action that it feels like – that at times it feels like stuff you've seen before. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's it, definitely taking from the, the very cultures of that are represented and the things that are represented in Chinese films for like 70 years. So mm-hmm. I don't, it's not, I didn't think it was playing off of like 
offensive stereotypes or anything. It's just, you know, I mean, this is the cultural idea here of what this mystical world would look like from tons and tons of Wuxia films that have yeah. been released. But they also insinuate that there's basically a Wakanda for these people. We just don't get to see it. They're like, yeah, they're from another dimension, not from here. This particular group of people that has like controls the whole planet and everybody's Asian and the food is great. So oh, I like Asian food. I'll tell you. Hopefully there's Indians there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like curry. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do this podcast when I'm hungry. Anyway, so I did watch the bonus features here. Uh, there's Building a Legacy. It's about nine minutes of just sort of a, a general, uh, the physical training, building the action sequences, shooting locations. I mean, it's a generalized EPK, everything crammed together. There's Family Ties for about seven and a half minutes, which of course is looking at uh, um, Tony Leung, who's like, you know, a legendary Hong Kong actor who came in for this. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff like Aquafina going like, oh my God, he's like literally my favorite actor in the world. I had already signed when they got him. And I was like, what? You're fucking with me. He's like, no, no, fucking with you. Tony Leung's playing the, the bad guy, sort of. Uh, the gag reel, two minutes of nothing special. Uh, four, four, 14 and a half minutes of uh, deleted scenes, a lot of which are very telling of different directions this was toying on going with. They gave a little bit more for Trevor. <laughs> to do, you know, mm. um, with his little weird fluffy thing that I can't believe they're not already selling in stores. Is, is what they call it, the chicken pig. I'm sure they, well, they're, they're, they don't have a plush. I'm sure there's a plush. I haven't seen one. Oh. But, yeah, I don't know. And then an audio commentary with director Daniel, Dustin Daniel Creighton and writer Dave Callahan. Well, let's move on to our next title, which is Batman Year One on 4K. We have reviewed Batman Year One before on this show. Uh, I so there's no need to go overboard with it. I can't remember if you were on the review for that. I was not on the review for that. And to be completely honest, uh, because I've done a few of these DC animated things before and I usually fall. It, it tends to be that on this adult animated stuff that I've reviewed for Digital Noise, I tend to be mixed negative. Yeah. I like year one a lot. I think year one is I think year one is one of the more solid efforts. Um, it's, it, it's the certainly... art style doesn't look anything like Dave Mazzucchelli. It's no. like, um, it looks very anime. Um, but I like it. They maintain the, well, it's not, you know, it's not plot beat to plot beat exactly the same. They maintain the focus on, you know, young Bruce Wayne, the Jim Gordon relationship, the Catwoman relationship, all the major beats of the Frank Miller comic are represented in, in a strong way, even if they, do take liberties with certain things. Sure, but not uh, a lot. It's yeah. pretty, pretty close to the yeah. book. And I, and I think it um, it finds... <laughs> some of these movies don't find their dramatic thread, and I think your one does, uh, and, and I, it's pretty solid. I still think they should have called this and the comic book James Gordon year one, because Batman is a supporting character in this story. To be for, fair, this is Jim Gordon's story. He has just joined the police force. Uh, this police force in Gotham. He came from winning a bunch of like medals and shit from previous ones and like highly recommended. But the problem is, of course, he's a good cop in a city of bad cops. And this is him coming in realizing I'm going to have to crack knuckles, clean up house. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think it's pretty solid. I, I, it's funny how over the years, my affection for Frank Miller's works have waned as opposed to how I felt about them when they initially came out. And this is probably reflective of just that Miller himself turned into such a weird freak show of a human being. But I mean, the book is still solid. It's just also that I think this story has now been done so many times, this variations on this that I'm like, oh, great. Here's another Batman. Oh, yeah, it's the original one. I know it's like everybody else ripped this off, but still. 
<laughs> I've always preferred your one to Dark Knight Returns, oh, okay. to be completely honest with you. I don't I think it's more it's more character driven, which is something I respond to better than uh than other comics. So if you're wondering, is it worth getting the 4K if I already have the Blu-ray? Well, it depends on, first off, how, how you feel about extras, because there are, are some new extras here. Reinventing Gordon, a 21-minute, 58-second featurette that just goes into deep background with a bunch of people about the history of Jim Gordon and the different ways he's been done, which I thought was interesting. And these are usually my favorite part of the bonus features on here, where they get deep dive into, like, supplemental characters on things. Um, so that's new. And then there's pre- <laughs> you know previews of things that have already come out. Uh, and flashbacks of the Constantine disc where the that particular special feature where they talk about the character uh-huh. was when uh, what was it Goyer says that there's no uh, there's no character in the DCU more American than John <laughs> you're like wait <laughs> what yeah uh, so there's the audio commentary with Andrea Romano DC animation creative de- uh, director Mike Carlin co-producer Alan Burnett and co-director Sam Liu um, there's Heart of Vengeance returning Batman to his roots about 23 min- three minutes long conversations with DC comics feature Featuring the 2011 Batman creative team for about 39 minutes. And then the short Catwoman, which is okay. I thought it was kind of like, eh, it takes place in the sort of like adjacent to the Batman year one storyline. So it's actually attached to it. It's that same Catwoman. But yeah, I mean, it's fine. But they did cut out the digital comic version of it, which I mean, I don't care. Yeah. And then, you know, the Bruce Tim picks classic Batman episodes from Batman the Animated Series. I'm like, okay, I have all that. I don't really need that. And then more other sneak peeks. And it really is a better looking copy than the Blu-ray significantly, which they were having trouble for a while with like the uh, the Blu-rays just not looking that great, not being great transfers. And the 4K was, I guess, necessary in that sense. If you already spent money on the, the, the Blu-ray, well, whatever, your results are going to vary. Let's go to another 4K here of a older film, The Outsiders, Francis Ford Coppola's 1983 coming-of-age drama, adaptation of the 67 novel, the same name by Essie Hinton. It always blows me away that she was like 16 when she wrote this book. And I read this in high school. (laughs) And so she was like just a few years older than me (laughs) when I read this. And I didn't know any of that. I didn't even know she was a she because, she, you know, at that time, it was like books by men sell better than books by women. So they said, well, why don't you use your initials? Anyway, it's funny watching the bonus features on this, how she's like maybe just in her 50s now. And you're like, that's so weird because it feels like The Outsiders has been around forever. Yeah. But that's partially because this movie really, Coppola made it with a, a feel of a movie that would have come out 20 years before that, you know, there's lots of, lots of the cinematography, although using different techniques to do it, like there's green screen projection and stuff like that they did, but there's like, you know, characters talking in front of a few props with a beautiful sunset behind them type of shit, you know, which they couldn't do because to do a shot like that takes hours and hours and a sunset lasts about 10 minutes. So <laughs> you got to shoot that straight with uh, special effects. But this was a big deal with C- like a bunch of up and coming stars that nobody really knew yet. Uh, C. Thomas Howell, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Matt Dillon, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Mount Ralph Macchio, and Diane Lane. One might argue this was the first Brat Pack film. Oh yeah. I would. S- I mean, yeah, they hadn't been defined as that yet, but yeah. Yeah. I can no. see that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, certain, the first film that gathered together this group of actors. I mean, for many, it was their first film, uh, but gathered them together and sort of an ensemble in a in a, in a 10-year period that had tons of ensemble films featuring a lot of these actors and, and more, of course. But this release on 4K is called The Complete Novel because it comes with not just the theatrical cut, but the considerably longer 
the complete novel version, which is generally considered to be the superior cut of the film because the things that were cut out were largely cut because the studio is like, you need to make this shorter. And which is largely the bulk of the first act of the film. (laughs) If you go into it and it's like the three brothers who live together, like most of that is just cut out. You just don't understand their relationship at all in the theatrical. Oh, interesting. Yeah. See, I've only, I've only ever watched the complete novel. I've never seen the theatrical version. Yeah. I've chose to watch the theatrical version. Um, when we were reviewing this because it, It'd been a long time since I've seen it anyway. But then the book, because I heard the bonus features feature shows you all the extra footage. You're like, okay, you can go into that and just watch those on their own. And, uh, yeah, a lot. The only <laughs> thing that I knew significantly different was the music apparently was different that the, that the complete novel uses more licensed music, hmm. uh, than the theatrical version. But, you know, I mean, some things, I don't know. Some things don't age as well and seem kind of corny in retrospect. And I do like this movie and Mm -hmm. I do end up liking almost all these actors, but it's clear this is first work for a lot of them. They're not all generally all very good. (laughs) No, but they are all, they are, they are all in. They are, they are acting to the ceiling of their own abilities. Um, I think in general, everybody, everybody short of probably Emilio Estevez is miscast. Yeah. Um, because, and, and Patrick Swayze, because everyone is so East coast and this is supposed to be rural Oklahoma. Right. And no one can, I mean, Ralph Macchio can't hide his like East coastness. <laughs> uh, you know, some people attempt accents, some don't, most don't. Yeah. Um, and it makes it hard to pin down where this is supposed to take place. Uh, it's super melodramatic. It's super corny. Um, but it somehow manages to still work through the sheer, I think that I, I do think the commitment to it, like everyone is, everyone is thoroughly committed to the story that they're telling. And I think that that it helps the movie through some of its melodrama and some of its like, you know, corn. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that also was knocking off, ripping off this. This was ripping off some other stuff. I mean, the only reason Coppola made this is because he was written a letter by a high school or middle school class, apparently, that all signed it and their teacher signed it. Dear Mr. Coppola, will you please make a movie of this book, The Outsiders? (laughs) And he had never heard of it. And he's like, I guess I got to read this book. And like, it's like, well, okay, I guess they want me to make this. That's his take on it anyway. I bet you there was more to it than that. But and you didn't still. see the producer credit. It was like producer Mrs. Smith's sixth grade class. <laughs> right. <I was> like- <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. Leaf Garrett is in this, too. I was like, what? And a young Tom Waits as well. Uh, very young. I was like, holy shit. I didn't think he was ever young. Yeah. <laughs> I, You know, I, I like this, but I don't know if this is a film I keep returning to. Um, a lot of people tell me, like, Rumblefish, they think is so much better than The Outsiders, despite Outsiders getting most of the attention, because it's, you know, I don't know, the bigger release. I think it had, I think it was better received when it came out. I don't know, John. This may be a good companion piece after you get back from seeing West Side Story, you know, of going like, oh, I want to watch another movie about, like, greasers and what have you you know <laughs> gangs. <laughs> old, gangs old gangs yeah exactly uh oh yeah nicholas cage flea and melanie griffith have uncredited cameos as uh background socialites the preppies they call socias i don't flea from red hot chili peppers yeah i didn't notice him i noticed cage i didn't notice him either but yeah. apparently he's in it 
So huh. there's a lot of like, you know, there's the socias versus the, 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 the greasers. And you're like, the socias are the yuppie guys. And I don't know, you get it. It's that type of movie. Anyway, so there's a shit ton of bonus features in this thing, including an introduction to the outsiders, the complete novel with Francis Ford Coppola for almost 12 minutes, a new 19 minute piece on how they restored this version of the outsiders and made it, brought it up to 4K. There's outside looking in for about eight minutes. Coppola returning for a discussion of key moments from the film. Uh, there's Stephen H. Burham on The Outsiders, the film's cinematographer, talks about personal memories of it. Old House, New Home for 11 Minutes, which is takes a look at uh, original author Essie Hinton um, and Danny Boy O'Connor, owner of The Outsiders House Museum. He literally bought the house the kids lived in and is like su- a super fan and just like turned it into a full museum. Hmm. I don't know why, but there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, there's eight deleted scenes, two of which are previously unreleased. And there's uh, three There's three trailers. There's two audio commentaries. There is... Um, a staying goal to look back at the outsider. I mean, there's, there's all the stuff on the previous versions, which is still in and of itself a lot. So if you like the outsiders, they ain't fucking around. <laughs> this is, this is like everything you want, except for some crazy gift edition. Like, I don't know. In- includes pomade. <laughs> yeah. Including pomade. Right. That would have been the thing. So moving on to another 4K, but this is for a new release. Whoo, they said. For Candyman, another re- movie that we reviewed on the site here. This is a, uh, update. No, I mean, it's not really a sequel. It's not really a reboot. It's something in between those, which is a very common thing these days. You know, you're like, it's kind of a reboot, but it also counts the first film. It just specifically references the events of the first film. And it's directed by Nia DaCosta, written by Jordan Peele, Wynn Rosenfield, and DaCosta. Uh, you know, I liked the original film, but not when I first saw it. I was like, I don't get entirely what this film is doing. But years later, rewatching, I was like, you know, I really genuinely like this because it, uh, having seen a lot more horror films by then, I was like, this is so different from everything else that was coming out. You know, yes, it's a killer with a hook for it. I appreciate that, but there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, he's also sort of a dream killer, but only sort of. He's kind of a Bloody Mary thing. It's mixing a bunch of shit together, but coming out with something that's new, that's trying to deal with gentrification and racial issues. And I thought really interesting way of sort of the Candyman himself as the representation of all the pain of a culture gathered over generations. And this movie sets up the premise that, well, you remember the bee thing that we didn't really explore in the first movie? <laughs> well, the bee thing is kind of representative because like, there's different aspects of Candyman that can appear and other people can become an aspect of Candyman, which is the fear of the main character uh, who is an artist, Yaha Abdul Mateen II, Anthony McCoy. He's a visual artist. Uh, he's, you know, he had a big breakout set of pieces, but he hasn't discovered where to go yet. He becomes obsessed with the Candyman's legend. And as he goes along, uh, you know, weird shit starts happening to his body, basically. It's sort of a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 type of gig going on here with that. Fair. Yeah. Uh, but I thought overall this is pretty good. I guess I wanted a little bit more than what I ended up getting, but I thought it it delivered more than it didn't. I, th- I would have appreciated if some of the gore was a little bit better. I mean, it is based on a much gorier slasher, and it felt like they were kind of dodging around the violence here. I'm not sure why. I mean, even the so-called elevated horror tends to have some extremely gory sequences in it, and I thought this was... You know, it's there's some of it. I also thought there's a third act bit with like a guy who originally is helping him, but then turns into sort of a crazy cult person that I thought was kind of dumb. But yeah, this felt uh, 
I tell you what, I was a little shocked by how um, reluctant it seemed to be a horror movie. Hmm. Um, and my other thing with it was I felt like, and I'll have to watch it again, um, I felt like it was asking some questions, but I couldn't articulate what the questions were that it was asking. Hmm. And it felt like, so to me, I don't know that the movie was wholly successful because it didn't it didn't quite work as a horror film, but it also didn't quite work with whatever statement it was trying to make because I, I couldn't feel like I could hear it. Like I couldn't hear the question that was being asked very clearly. Mm -hmm. I'll, I will need to watch it again to kind of parse out what I think it was trying to say or trying to approach. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I saw Candyman 2 before I saw Candyman 1. And, mm. and Candyman... Is that Farewell to the Flesh? Or yeah, something like that? it's... Uh, yeah, because three's Day of the Dead. Yeah, so Farewell <laughs> to the Flesh. And I saw you it before I saw... knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> I saw it before I saw Candyman 1. And um, the funny thing is, like, in, in that movie, he's just a slasher. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, oh, you say him and he shows up and he kills you. And it was just a it was just a slasher movie with an interesting backstory. Okay. Um and so when I finally saw one, it was a very different film than uh than what I thought it would be. Uh I didn't know it was, you know, I didn't know it was about urban legends and this woman that's like looking into things. And actually it wasn't until like the and I feel dumb saying this. It wasn't until like the third or fourth time I saw the original Candyman that I realized that they were that she was the killer. Oh. Like, I don't know how I didn't pick that up. Huh. I think it's because I saw two first and in two, he's the literal killer. Right. So when I watched one, I was like, oh, he's a literal, he, he's a killer. So he's killing people. It wasn't like the third or fourth one that I cracked the code and was like, oh, <laughs> she's, she's basically infected by it's him. It's a weirdly sort of, complicated like, premise for a slasher film yeah. series. <laughs> um, I, I low key liked the new one, but not. It's weird. I haven't seen a movie that I have felt like I will not form an opinion on until I rewatch it as much as I have with Candyman. It's been a long time since I've seen something that's made me go, I don't know if I like that or not, and I don't know if I can articulate why. Sure. And, and someday I'll watch it again, and maybe I'll have a better grasp on whether <laughs> or not I actually like it. Um, Glad you saw it, though. Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it's just so... It's just so... Uh, An album by Peter Gabriel? Yeah. It just seem, it seems, just seems so oddly reluctant to be a horror film. I think its number one priority is to be an exploration of reclaiming, uh, like, kind of reclaiming the, the Candyman story into black hands. Mm -hmm. um, but even from then, I'm not sure what they're trying to say with it. Yeah. <coughs> Other than the obvious things like the stuff about gentrification, yeah, <coughs> you know, I, I'll I will revisit it for sure. I think it's a it's a complicated movie. It's a divisive movie as well. Sure, um, I liked also all the shadow puppet stuff they were doing to sort of tell the story of the history. I thought that was kind of neat. But uh, there is a bunch of new stuff here. Uh, there's a alternate ending, which is actually more or less exactly the same. So it's not that different. What? What? John? Get that face. Oh, you just got a sneeze? You need a Kleenex? <laughs> <coughs> Poor John. There we go. There's a, 
uh, five minutes, about six minutes of deleted and extended scenes. There's uh, seven minutes, say my name, exploring the story and the franchise. Uh, but within looking at from today's complexities and social issues, there's body horror for six and a half minutes, which looks at the original film, but focuses largely on the special effects. Uh, the filmmaker's eye needed to cost for five minutes where she talks about her relationship watching the original and then uh, where she went from there. Painting chaos, seven minutes. Uh, w- there's a lot about, you know, paintings because the main guy is a creator and it looks who did it and how it fits into here. The art of Robert Akey, Aubrey Lowe, which looks at the film's composer. Uh, Terror in the Shadows for four minutes, which is the shadow puppetry. Candyman, the impact of black horror, which is the most interesting thing here by far, which is 20 and a half minutes roundtable discussion with uh, several of the people uh, with some of the people involved with this film. And then um, several people who are prominent black critics of and uh, dealing with art. Um, And it's really interesting as they talk about like why this film is interesting, what it's talking about. I thought what you're looking for may have been in that bonus Hmm. feature, but anyway, let's move on to our next one, which is, and there's another one. Sorry. There's a lot of stuff this week. We've done a full review for, but malignant is now out on, on Blu-ray. I don't know why Warner brothers slash HBO keeps doing this thing with the HBO exclusives that aren't, that are getting a tiny theatrical release. And then they watch them, put them out on Blu-ray and there's almost no reason to pick them up on Blu-ray. They're not going away on HBO. So I'm like, why Why is it on Blu-ray? I don't know. I mean, I like it. It's James Wan. I like James Wan movies more than I don't. I wasn't crazy about Aquaman, but other than that, I mean, his films can be kind of silly horror, but they're fun silly horror. And this is definitely him going, well, I've been doing the Haunted House thing for a while, like following up on all the Haunted House movies I'd growing up loving. So now it's time to go into like a movie that sort of crushes together a bunch of stuff from the crazier 80s gore fest movies that I really liked. You know, your your Frank Henlotter films and what have you. Yeah, and I found it closer to that. <laughs> I, you know, the I've it's actually I'd forgotten about the discourse surrounding the movie, but there was so much about it where people were saying Oh, it's a perfect tribute to Giallo. And I was like, it's American Giallo, maybe. I was sort of going like, why? I, and, and it's because in the press, he, he was saying that. Yeah. He was saying, Oh, it's my tribute to Giallo. And I was going, do I not know Giallo enough <laughs> to be able to articulate like why I don't think this is very much like some of the a color Giallo usage, film. maybe. And then, like I said, the American film that many people, I would say is definitely owes a huge debt to Giallo. The eyes of Laura Mars is mm. certainly a huge part of what's happening here. But yeah, it's more, like I said, it owes a lot more to like those sort of really crazy gonzo films, of Frank, like Basket Case and what have yeah, you. Yeah, it was it way closer. I, I or, felt like it was the way closer to Basket or Case or Brain Damage. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I enjoyed it. And I don't want to, if you haven't seen this, you really should, um, if you like horror, because it does get pretty crazy. Um, it's not like it's super hard to predict. In fact, upon rewatching it, I was like, Jesus, like they throw in lines constantly through this movie that once you know what the twist is, you're like, they were literally just saying it, what what the twist is over and over again. And you just kind of miss it until a point where you go, I'm pretty sure it's this. Yeah. (laughs) And it is. But it leads to some really neat effects stuff that they did, a really cool, like sort of, and I always like this. How come there are more killers who do martial arts? I'd like killers who do martial arts. And this killer does martial arts and parkour and shit like that. I'm like, cool. Imagine how much more scary Michael Myers would be if he... No, never mind. I won't even go there. 
but I think Annabelle Wallace is terrific here in the lead. I like Juan being very, this is definitely his, I just want to play film. He's experimenting a lot with different shots. Like he uses prominently what he calls a spider camera where the whole set has no ceiling. And so he has it where the thing is just following the character all through the house, up and down, using this camera that can shoot from above by remote. Just little neat things like that. I don't think ultimately this is like a new masterpiece of horror, like some people are saying, but it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is that going to be your entirety of the input on this one? I just, I thought that there was too much around the edges of it that were a little shabby. Like, I think the dialogue is kind of bad. I think that... I don't think all the performances are great. Um, I mean, you see the way people were excusing it by going, but that's what he's trying to do. I, I'm saw, like, I did see I some of that. Don't and I don't think, think that's that the was case. what he was trying to do. Like, oh, he was going for camp. He was trying to nail a certain tone. And I was like, mm, it kind of reminds me of those like Eastern European direct-to-video action movies in regards to the quality of the acting and some of the dialogue. Right. And I was like, I don't think that's where he was aiming. Yeah. Um, I don't but, think he intentionally dumbed down the dialogue for the purposes of being camp. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I do think it's stylish. It is fun. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a good time. It is a good time. Well, we already reviewed this. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this does come with a 14-minute, 11-second behind-the-scenes feature that follows James Wan throughout like the making of this i mean it's short but it was really entertaining and there was some stuff i didn't know in there about it and a lot of look at how they did the effects which are super cool like it's a neat effect that they do for the monster and i was interested to see how they pulled it off all i can say is that multiple contortionists got work during this movie as you might imagine all right moving on to home bodies this is well we're finally going for something like a that's not in 4K or new. <laughs> We're going back to Kino Lober for a film that I had never fucking heard of. Me neither. But you, when th- I, you think you heard everything. Yeah, a 1974 <laughs> comedy horror film about a bunch of like very old people who start committing a series of murders. I'm like, how, how, how did that miss me? That's exactly the sort of thing I would, the first time I heard of it, I'd be like, huh, I gotta find that. I gotta watch that. Sounds like that could be interesting. Sure enough, when I saw Kino was putting it out, read the description, went, yeah. I got to see that. Let's put that in front of my eyes. So yeah, this follows a group of pensioners who live in, you know, an older apartment building in the city and they find out that their homes are going to be demolished to make way for a whole, you know, more upgraded set of flats. Uh, and eventually they realize that no matter talking is going to help. So they end up turning to murdering everyone involved mm-hmm. on the other side in some really truly gruesome ways. There's like a mob hit type of murder in here that they really, you, nothing is left to the imagination in it. I was like, Oh, that is, that would be a really horrible way to die. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't like, I'm maybe if I had like, I mean, all the actors here have like previous credits, like Carl Bracco, uh, sorry, Peter Bracco, who was in Spartacus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Francis Fuller, uh, William Hansen, Ruth McDevitt, Paula Truman, Ian Wolfe, Linda Marsh, Douglas Foley. There's a lot of people, if you watched a lot, if you were watching films in 1974 and before, you might have recognized, but now you're going to be like, I don't know who any of these people are. This is lightly entertaining. There are points I'm like, wow, that was truly gruesome, and I did not expect this film to go there. I guess I was expecting something more on the comedy side. It's not really horror either. No, it's a, it's kind of a social satire. It's just not a laugh-out-loud funny one. 
Yeah. It's yeah. like one of those movies we always go, follow the Soderbergh rule, rule. Don't remake good movies. Remake movies that could have been good but weren't, you know? And this is one of those, like, wow, someone should totally remake this film because this would be this would be a really cool idea. And especially you could do this with a different take on it. Speaking about Candyman and gentrification, you could sort of turn it around and do something slightly different with it. But, I mean, this is – it's okay. It's It's charming at points. When it needs to be. It was a nice discovery for me. I actually thought it was, it's kind of gritty. It has the very grainy, gritty look of like a 70s exploitation film. So they must have been shooting it on like the cheapest of the cheap stock. Yeah. But it's surprisingly, it's got some really artistic editing flourishes. They edit to the, um, there's a really interesting sequence where the uh, the folks are relocated to a uh, to a high rise um, apartment building. They have these little you know apartments ready for them to move into, mm-hmm. and there's a rhythm of the editing that aligned to the score that I thought was kind of fancy. Um, so it it looks exploitation around the edges, but it's actually pretty tightly made. Like it, I thought it was deceptively well executed because of how you know, cheap and sort of like weird Wednesday, it looks on the surface uh, right. that it was surprisingly artistic. Um, and, you know, acting strong. I think if there was any one thing that um, I wished that it had, it was a character that I loved. Because um, I feel like all of the old people that they set up are sort of defined by like, they kind of pick a trait. Yeah. Um, and then that's the one thing they get to play. And they don't really get any deeper characterization other than the one, the kind of one thing that they're handed. Right. Um, so everybody's kind of a little underwritten. And I think, I think if everybody had a little bit more, uh, a little bit more characterization, and I might have even like loved this movie, but as it was, it, it caught me off guard. And I, and I do think it's, you know, I'm glad that they, that they've released it now because, uh, it, it's too good to have sat unknown for years and years and years. I agree with that. There is a brand new commentary with the director, Larry Eust, and there is a brand new interview with the producer, Marshall Backlar, a reversible cover with vintage post art and two vintage trailers. Uh, moving on to one of my favorite things that I got sent this week, which is Night Gallery. Now, I'm a big fan of all things Rod Serling, just like full disclosure. I love my Twilight Zone sets. <laughs> I'm very excited to have them and to go back and rewatch them. Night Gallery was... His next show after Twilight Zone, which was, you know, in color and uh, focused more on horror and the supernatural than it did on science fiction. Twilight Zone definitely tended to lean more on the science fiction side, for sure. Um, this aired from 1970 to 1973 and launched with a pilot film that was, you know, an anthology film. It was just like three episodes of the show, but uh, released at all at once. And it's... I don't know, man. Like, I, I tend to be more horror than sci-fi myself anyway. And there's stuff in here that's really great. Like, really great. But there's also stuff that's... Like, the one that was, like, won awards is, I think, the weakest one in the whole set. Where it's just, like, this feels like a kind of a lame stage play. Yeah. Um, but there's, like, this was Steven Spielberg's first thing that he ever did. Where he directed uh, Joan... I believe it was Joan Crawford's last thing she ever filmed. Uh, this thing called Eyes, where she plays a blind woman who gets an operation, but they'll only give her 12 hours to see, and then there's a blackout. <laughs> with with uh, Tom Bosley as like a weird, you know, very enthusiastic, but like not quite a street person, but like, you know, really down on his luck guy who's donating his eyes to this. Like, weird role for Bosley. Like, 
<laughs> the, this is uh, so. The other thing historically about this, just for the listeners, is that um, the show in syndication was cut uh, because there weren't enough episodes uh, to support syndication. So they took the episodes, which are typically about an hour long, and they each have two to three stories. So they basically splintered the episodes up for syndication and padded them out. Um, so you're not getting the syndicated half hour installments of the individual stories. You're getting the original airing, uh, structure, which was these, these one hour, uh, anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that this was kind of, I don't throw things at me, Chris. <sighs> I thought this was pretty weak. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. I, I think that visually it's really nice. Like they did a great job with the set. Uh, it looks as cleaned up as anything. Like it's, it's a really, really gorgeous Blu-ray. It looks fantastic. And back in those days in the sixties and seventies, they were really moving a lot of color TV sets. So they, they popped things with color. It's why Star Trek looks the way it does is like, you know, they could put it on display in a store and people would go, wow. So it's very, very colorful show. My problem with Night Gallery that's different from Twilight Zone is that when a Night Gallery starts, when the premise is established, you can you can close your eyes and guess where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like Twilight Zone is the same way. Twilight Zone is far more unpredictable. I found most of the Night Gallery episodes, like, fairly easy. Like, almost to the point where it was, it was like, you would go, uh... Okay, I see what they're doing here. And then you're just waiting for that, for that thing to happen. And then that thing happens. It kind of reminded me at best, they reminded me of the weaker installments in an Amicus anthology, like a Tales Hmm. from the Crypt or Vault of Horror or like, you know, uh, what's a torture garden, stuff like that. I think if you have a penchant for those Amicus anthology films, I I do. So this comes close, but I, but again, I felt like it was on the weaker side of those. Like it would be like the more forgettable installments of the Anarchus <laughs> films. Oh, I, did I not, wasn't crazy about I this. I did not feel that way. I actually like this better than a lot of the installments in the Anarchus oh, films. Wow. One of my favorites is one of the more science fiction ones where the basically they act in the future they accidentally sent a medical bag back to the, the past. And Burgess Meredith is like a homeless guy who used to be a doctor and he finds it and it's filled with like super incredible medicine stuff. <laughs> and I like, that was cool. There's neat ideas in this. And I agree. There's always a point in these you're like, okay, I can see where this is going, but that's true of almost every Twilight Zone episode as well. Oh, I think it is. I don't think it is. I don't know. I really, really enjoyed this. And this has a shit ton of actors of the time. Yeah, it does. In yeah, prominent it does. roles. Spielberg also directs one later in here uh, that was a, Re- called Make Me Laugh that was redone for the Jordan Peele ser- uh, Twilight Zone series, um, where the comedian like wishes for. Un- oh yeah, you know I didn't wishes. put two and two together, but yeah, it's the one with Kamal or not unlimited uh, wishes, yeah, yeah, where he wishes to be funny and then everyone finds him so funny but can't I, stop I laughing saw, at and everything. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't correlate those, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess your results are going to vary. I'm kind of surprised. I thought this would have been your it sort is, of thing. I will say this: it is a nice set and it's beautiful. It's so, and it's no longer streaming anywhere. No. Um, and it had been streaming places for a while. And now that the set is out, I guess it's no well, longer streaming. A lot anywhere. of those ones that were streaming were streaming the crappy versions and not the original That's aired true, version. That's true, too. They were too. all doing the 30-minute versions. But uh, um, I, I don't th- – I think that it's – um. I don't feel like I wasted my time or whatever with it. I just, I just didn't like it as much as I thought I would. Okay. 
especially being someone who somehow accidentally had produced a uh, an entire stage show whose premise was almost exactly the same as Night Gallery. <laughs> oh, I, I see I what did, happened here. <laughs> I did Hell Hell, uh, and it was like my sketch show, and it was paintings, haunted paintings that uh, the person, the host, would talk about the painting, and then you would see right. like whatever the scene was. Because it starts. I had a vague s- awareness of Night Gallery, but I had I'd never laid eyes on an episode right. of Night Gallery. It starts with Rod like, Serling, yeah. much like Twilight Zone, except here he's going around a gallery, going, "Look at this creepy ass painting." Let me tell you the story. <laughs> I like it when the paintings don't resemble anything. Like they sent somebody, like they sent a PA out to like, uh, we need a painting of something that represents a comedian. And they come back with like a clown with an umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it's not <laughs> even that, like. And there's a few of the paintings that actually figure into the story itself that are kind of cool when they do that. Do but... you ever wonder when you see things like that? Do you ever wonder where those Think those pieces of art end up like who oh, yeah. owns that? Who owns the clown somebody and somewhere, umbrella painting from Night Gallery? Somebody somewhere is super excited to have like a warehouse space somewhere filled with those. You know, they're right next to the Lost Ark somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of audio commentaries on this, uh, brand new ones that are exclusive to the set by various filmmakers and historians. Um, uh, there is a look at the show's troubled second life in reruns, a new featurette by historian Craig Beam for about an hour that looks at like that whole history. There's an episode guide insert booklet. Um, I, I don't know. It's a pretty solid set. I really like this. But it is a great set. Yeah. But I know that you're running out of time and I figured I can toss you a couple more movies and talk you into doing the second half next week sometime. Oh, okay. does that work? Like that if works. you do early next week sometime? Yeah. Yeah. We're coming out. I'll just toss you like four more movies on, on top of that and we'll just go. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. There you go. So we're going to end the show this, uh, this, this way. What is the pick of the week, John? Because this is a hard one, actually. I mean, for me, I would pick Night Gallery, but it seems like you're not as excited about that. I think the Night Gallery set is really good. If I, but if I was going to point somebody to something, I would point them to Homebodies as far as a new discovery mm-hmm. of a movie that, you know, even if, again, even if I'm didn't love it and I wasn't quite the audience for it, it's a shame that it's been wherever it's been at the bottom of a pile of some bankrupt studios <laughs> releases or something, I guess, before Kino found it. I mean, I'm looking at you talented young filmmakers today out there who, you know, have enough support. They can talk to the studio and they're going, hey, you guys own that? I'd like to remake this. You know, I say, somebody should. I say it out loud, but honestly, like Outsiders is a better movie. Uh, and that set is pretty exhaustive. That's a super exhaustive set. Okay, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it to outsiders, but okay. l- every, listeners should seek out homebodies. But right. I'm gonna give pick of the week to I outsiders. Mean, like, even, yeah, agreed. It's like not my favorite, but there's no arguing with how much work they put into that set. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And if you love that film, you're gonna want to pick it up. For sure. Anyway, this has been Digital Noise. John and I, I guess, will be back to, back soon. I'll be uh, back he soon. He gets to watch some crazy other movies that I've already seen. They'll pass off to him. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening.